a short series on the parables in Mark, and today we're going to be looking at one of the most, I guess, talked about, um, argued about perhaps passages in the whole Bible. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, Mark chapter 3, so if you could grab your Bible and turn there, that'd be great. This is a passage that's got two really quite famous things in it, one of them that's really famous inside the church and worries people, and the other that's more famous outside the church. The bit that's famous inside the church that will probably grab our attention as we read it um, and prompts often a lot of inward-looking introspection and argument is the bit about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And there might be plenty of people here listening now who are going, I've heard of that. I've worried in the past, maybe I'm worried now that I have committed it. Have I blasphemed against the Holy Spirit? It's quite a well-known passage that makes people quite worried. And there might be others here who say, I haven't committed it, but they have. And I'm worried that somebody over there isn't worried enough about that, that, that thing, whatever it is. So that's quite a well-known thing within the church. People often talk, what is it? What's the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? But outside the church, people don't really talk about that very often. Outside the church, the bit of this story that's much more famous is Jesus's phrase, um, his statement that a house divided against itself cannot stand. It's a very well-known expression, and it, it sounds like a very pithy statement of a general principle. A household or a house or a kingdom that's divided against itself can't stand. And you often hear, people often say it, it becomes a bit of a proverb, and it's particularly famous in America because it was quoted by Abraham Lincoln in his speech just before the US Civil War, and he described America as divided like that over slavery. And he said, in the end, a house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. It will become all one thing or all the other. So it's become a very well-known phrase in the States, because, uh, which then trickles through in lots of media. So you'll often hear it said, and so you've got the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and then the house divided image. And the house divided became so well known that people made a film based on the idea. I don't know if anyone's anyone seen this film, A House Divided, or perhaps have even seen this Netflix show more recently, A House Divided. Has anybody seen both of them? That would be curious. To people who've seen both the film, and that would be amazing, but I suspect most of us haven't. But it's become a very well-known thing. And so you have what you have is Jesus telling a story in response to the accusation that he's demonized and his family think he's mad. His family think he's lost it. And in response, Jesus talks about the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit and tells this little parable about the house divided. And, and all three of these things, like the, the allegation and the blasphemy point and the story about the house divided, they're all connected. But the question is how? What are, what's the allegation? Why do people think Jesus is mad? Why do they think he's demonized? And why does he respond by telling them this sort of parable about a divided house and then a strong man being tied up, mixed in with this thing about blasphemy? What's going on here? How does it all happen? So what I want to do very briefly is just summarize the structure of the passage before reading it out so you can just see what's going on. What happens in the passage is you start off in chapter 3, verse 13 with a list of Jesus' disciples. Then you hear about Jesus' family. Then you hear about the accusation that's made that he's in league with the devil. Then you get the parable, that's in the middle. Then the accusation about Jesus is repeated. He said this because he thinks he's got a demon. Then you hear about Jesus' earthly family again, in, in sort of mirror image to when you heard it earlier. Jesus, your mother and brothers are here. And then finally you hear about Jesus' disciples again. Jesus says, actually, whoever does my will, whoever does the will of God is my mother and my brothers. 
So it's sort of a, a mirror. There's a mirror in the middle of the passage. It's like an X-shaped um, or a triangle-shaped uh, bit, of, bit of scripture. And it's just worth seeing that so that as we're reading through it, you can see what's going on. And hopefully you can then see from that how the, the house-divided parable is actually at the centre of the passage and is the answer to the accusation of Jesus being in league with demons. And it might also help us raise the question of, well, so why did people think Jesus was mad? And it might even challenge our assumptions about who his family actually are. So we're going to read uh, Mark chapter 3 and beginning at verse 13. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bernagas, that is, sons of thunder, Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Cananean, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that he couldn't even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he's possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house won't be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand, but he's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. And his mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said, your mother and brothers are outside, they're seeking you. And he answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. One of the things I love about this passage, historically speaking, is that it's absolutely certain that it happened. Now, so I'm an evangelical pastor of a church, right? So I believe the scriptures are completely true and authoritative, and I believe them all. That gives me no problem, in large part because Jesus believed and taught that they were true and completely authoritative. But lots of people today, of course, don't believe that at all. You might not. I don't know. There are lots of people in our culture who don't believe that. They think that the scriptures are a mixture of facts along with fiction and myth. Some of it really happened, some of it's made up, some's a bit of a blend. But whoever you are and whatever you think about scripture generally, there is absolutely no doubt that this story in which Jesus' own family accuse him of being mad and the scribes accuse him of being demonized, there's no doubt this story is completely historically true. Right? There is no possible motive for Jesus' friends and followers who hailed him as God to make up this charge. 
That is one of the most historically certain things that happens in a way in the New Testament because there's such embarrassing claims no one would ever have invented them unless they knew they were true. So there was a group of these sort of very, you know, high-powered scholars a few decades ago who were very sceptical about the Bible, didn't really believe lots of it ever happened, but they, they, had, they set up this group called the Jesus Seminar and they took lots of votes on all the sayings, and, but they, they said basically, yeah, this, these stories, because there's one in Luke as well and one in Matthew, these stories, from a historical point of view, this or something that's almost exactly like it definitely happened. Like there's no way that people would make this up. And that's quite intriguing. Because it means that Jesus was doing something or some things that were so remarkable that people close to him felt the need to say, I think he must, be, he must be getting his power from the devil, or I think he's lost his mind, or both. And that the apostles felt, we need to write this down and make sure that we explain to people why people said that and why we don't think it's true. Another New Testament scholar, Tom Wright, wrote, wrote this recently. I thought it was helpful. He said, people don't accuse you of being in league with the devil unless you're doing some pretty remarkable things. So the fact that this allegation, Jesus is demonized, Jesus has got his power from Beelzebub, the fact that that charge is in scripture is both like a historically certain reality and also provides us grounds to say, wow, what on earth was he doing that people felt the need to explain his power with reference to satanic forces? That Jesus has been healing people and driving out demons and his family and his opponents are likewise looking for kind of explanations as to what's going on. They've got different concerns. His family are concerned that he's just doing so much healing and so on that he's not, not, eat, not eating, might make himself unwell. His enemies are obviously going, how else do we explain this? Because it, it's either going to be God or it's the devil. It must be the devil then. But actually the result of these different allegations is a fascinating trilemma, if you know what I mean, like a, a dilemma but with three options. Now, you may have come across a trilemma before. The, the very famous one C.S. Lewis came up with is that Jesus must be mad, bad, or God. You may have come across that. If you've done the Alpha course or something, you'll have almost certainly heard that. And it comes through really clearly in, um, in a book like The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, or the, or the movie, where you'd see this, where Lucy claims to have discovered another land. She comes back out of the wardrobe. She tells them she's seen it. And the older siblings don't believe her. And the professor says, well, hang on, there's only three possibilities here. Either she's lying, or she's mad, or it's really true. But it can't be anything else. Like, those are the only three options. Either she's telling the truth, or she's mistaken. And if she's mistaken, it's either because she's gone mad, or because she is actually lying. But there's no other option, really, in this situation. Now, in this passage, the trilemma is slightly different. It's not mad, bad, or God. In some ways, it's, is Jesus deranged, demonized, or divine? But the same question is on the table for us as readers. So what's actually going on with this miraculous power Jesus is using? What do we, how do we explain that? Because both his family and his enemies know perfectly well Jesus has been healing people. So they can't, they can't go, oh, he's lying. He's claiming to do healings, but it's not true. Because they, they can see it in the front of their eyes, right? That's why they make these charges. They know that Jesus has been doing miracles. And their problem is, well, so how do we explain that reality? And so what happens is his family think he's deranged. Verse 21, he is out of his mind. They just think he's lost the plot. Maybe he's been working, maybe he is called of God and he's working these miracles, but it's just gone to his head and he's lost it. The scribes, on the other hand, think he's demonized. They say, verse 22, he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. 
he casts out demons. So they're saying, no, he's not deranged, he's not mad, he's just demonized. Like the Dark Lord, we might say, has got him. Beelzebul refers to the devil, but literally it means Lord of the Flies, that's what the word means. And you often find it referred to or mis deliberately misquoted in the Old Testament as Beelzebub. It's the same kind of idea. But the idea, the Lord of the Flies or the Lord of Dung or something stronger is what he's referred to in the Old Testament. So it's like this sort of way of describing the work of the devil. They're saying Jesus is possessed by basically the devil. So he's, we've got the family saying he's deranged. We've got his enemies saying he's demonized. And then Jesus' claim is that his power is divine. He said, this, is, this power hasn't come from the devil. I'm certainly not mad, you can see that. This power has come from God, it's come from the Holy Spirit. And we know that that's what Jesus thinks is going on because in verse 29 he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, which is what you're doing by saying my power comes from the devil, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, then you're guilty of an eternal sin. Do you see, so he, he's saying my power comes from the Holy Spirit and you're claiming it doesn't, you're claiming it comes from the devil. But by attributing the power of the spirit to the devil, you are blaspheming him and you're in big trouble. And we'll come to that in a moment. So it's, uh, Jesus, is, is, his appeal is, this is not, I'm not deranged and I'm certainly not demonized. This is divine power. This is God's power by the spirit enabling me to heal. And of course, attributing the power of the Holy Spirit to Satan puts you, puts them beyond repentance. So somebody sees Jesus do a work like this, a casting out of a demon, a, a miraculous healing, a raising of a sick person from their, from their hospital bed that they've, they've been in for years and suddenly being able to walk or be able to see if they were previously blind. If you see something that powerful and they say, the, the devil did it, then you're effectively putting yourself in a position where you are beyond repentance. Almost nothing would ever get you to a place where you would want to repent. The good news, friends, is that that means if you feel repentant about something in your life, you have not committed this sin. If you feel, if you're like, when I did that, was that the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I really hope not. I feel terrible. If you feel like that, you haven't done it. Because the whole point of this sin is that it makes you hardened of heart such that you don't repent. You don't want to come to Jesus to get forgiveness. Put, put more simply, if you're worried you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you haven't. Because people who have done it, don't worry about it. Because the whole nature of the sin is it corrupts the heart to saying, this is just not even the power of God. I don't care. And that, of course, is the, an important point when it comes to applying it in our lives. Some of us are nervous or have been anxious in the past about this. And it's important. I just reassure you, if you're worried you've committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, you haven't. The people who have are really not worried about it at all. They've hardened their hearts and they're saying, no, this isn't, I don't even need to, I've got no one to repent to. This is of the devil. And so make the case to try and present the case that Jesus is using, is basically drawing his power from God and the spirit rather than from the devil or let alone that he's mad. Jesus tells them a parable. Or if you prefer, it's actually kind of a mixture of three parables all told as if they're one. One of the three is about a divided kingdom. One's about a divided house. And one is about plundering the house of a strong man. And this is what he says, verse 23. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom's divided against itself, the kingdom can't stand. And if a house is divided against itself, the house won't be able to stand. And if Satan's risen up against himself and is divided, he can't stand. And he's coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. 
then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus is saying to them, one of two things is happening here. Either my power to heal the sick and cast out demons comes from Satan, which is what you're saying, or it comes from God by his spirit, which is what I'm saying. But if it comes from Satan, then that means that Satan is casting out Satan. You've got a battle going on here between that Satan is the demonized guy and then Satan is the person who's casting him out. So there's this sort of divided house. How on earth would that even work? The idea that Satan's kingdom is sort of so fractious that he's both demonizing people and liberating people at once. What would that mean? That would be like a country in civil war. It'd be like a household that was disintegrating into rival factions. It would never hold. And that, of course, is where Abraham Lincoln comes in, because that's exactly what he was saying about the USA. He was saying, yeah, that's, that's this nation. The nation is at risk of disintegrating into civil war like a house divided. So Jesus is saying that you think that you're seeing Satan fighting Satan, but that doesn't make any sense. How, what kind of a kingdom would that be? What you are actually seeing, Jesus says, is the plundering of Satan's kingdom by someone stronger. You are seeing the devil himself being tied up or bound with a view to redeeming everything and everyone that he's ever taken. But the twist is, whichever of those two things you think is happening, Satan fighting against Satan, the house divided, or the plundering of Satan's property by a stronger person who's bound him up, whichever of those two things you think is happening, the dominion of Satan is collapsing. There's no future for this kingdom. If you think my power is demonic, then the house of Satan cannot stand, verse 26, but is coming to an end. And if you think my power comes from God, the Holy Spirit, which it is, it does, then the house of Satan is now in the process of being burgled by someone who has bound the devil and is going to take out from the devil's possession all of the things that he has stolen or taken over his long history of trying to oppress the human race. Now, Jesus is saying, of course, that's the, that's the true version, and the house divided thing isn't true. But either way, Satan's dominion is at an end, because I'm here. On the 10th of September, 1945, my grandpa was liberated from a prisoner of war camp in Manchuria. And he'd been there for three and a half years. This is a picture of him. I'm sorry, it's very grainy. Um, when I think of my grandpa, he was a much larger man than that. Um, because I knew him in his 60s and 70s, but this is uh, the only picture we had of him in this period. This is a picture of him in 1940, just before his ship was sunk. And he was, he was sunk in March 1942, and he went and was captured, and then was kept in a prisoner of war camp for three and a half years. And it was a pretty brutal experience, as these POW camps in Japan often were at the time. Um, but within eight days of Japan surrendering, he was freed. So what happened was, of course, he'd been fighting this war. He's been there for three and a half years, dwindling in size dramatically. He became incredibly, dangerously small, you know, emaciated, really, from, from not eating enough. But at the end, over three and a half years, nothing happens. And then Japan is conquered. Japan surrenders. And within eight days, my grandpa is out. And what happens is, of course, you have to, first of all, you have to conquer the enemy, which is what happened. And, if, you know, obviously you'll know the, the story. It's often much in the news at the moment, actually. But you... Japan has to be conquered. But as soon as the, the strong man is bound, then all of the captives are freed. Almost 
almost automatically, almost, you want, now you've conquered, the, you've conquered the enemy, you can now go in and say just one at a time, right, I'm now going to liberate that camp and that camp. And this, of course, this happened all over the world at the time. We're going to liberate you because, and it's not the only time it's happened, it's just the only one I know of in my family, where the war comes to an end, the strong man, if you like, the nation, the military is bound, is captured. And then, one by one, all of these people who have been held captive are liberated, almost plundered and brought into freedom. First comes victory, then comes liberation. My grandpa was um, so small and shrunk by the end of this ordeal that instead of getting the boat straight home, he actually decided to go home via Canada because he was worried that if he appeared to his family in his, in the, in his state at the time, he would terrify them by how much he'd almost disappeared. So he just basically took a longer journey home to make sure that by the time he reached home, he looked more like himself and did. And then, of course, went on to marry my grandmother and... I'm here as a result, and you may or may not thank him for that. But that's, a, that's an example of how you've, you've got to first bind the strong man, but then when you do, you can bring freedom to people, and then they have to begin to step into the freedom they've got, and they have to begin to live in the light of who they now are and begin to be restored to the people God created them to be. Now, the force, in the case of my grandpa, the force that brought freedom to him was the most catastrophically destructive thing that's ever happened on planet Earth namely the atom bomb being dropped on Hiroshima and then later on Nagasaki. The thing that freed him was an utterly devastating destructive force and it's filled with moral complexity and difficulty as this, yeah, the movie Oppenheimer that's out at the moment makes very clear this is a really difficult thing to think through. But the decisive moment that bound Satan is not like that at all. So the Japanese were conquered by a very destructive force and you can debate whether that was right or wrong. But the moment that Satan was bound was not as a result of a destructive force, it was the releasing of the most cr crushingly, liberatingly powerful, loving, healing, transforming force that's ever been unleashed on planet Earth. It was the love of God set forth in Christ at the cross that caused Satan to be bound. That caused Satan to be tired of saying, I've got nothing now because the weaponry I have is all based on accusation and lies. And when the truth has come in human form and when liberty and freedom and love of God has come in human form and my accusations have been silenced, I've got nothing. I'm bound. The accuser now stands accused. The binding one is bound. Captivity is captured and the prisoners are freed. This is what Paul said in Colossians 2 verse 15. Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Christ, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So although both of these examples, in some ways, my grandfather and me being spiritually liberated, or you, in some ways they look similar, but actually what's happened in one is just destruction, and the other what's happened is that the love of God being set forth is so powerful that it has both bound the devil taken away all of his weaponry and then liberated, plundered everybody that Satan had ever held captive forever. So what should our response be? How do we live in light of this par these parables? This, the house divided, the kingdom divided, the plundering of the strong man. Well, when this story first happened, in some ways the answer was quite obvious what you do. The, uh, the reason that Jesus was telling the story was really to say to his, a bit his family, but mostly the scribes and the crowd, hey, Credit where it's due, right? You, you must not see this liberating, healing, demon driving out power and attribute it to the devil or madness. You must see it as a result of the power of the Holy Spirit. That was what, in the original setting, that was the application. Hey guys, stop putting that, these miracles down to the devil. They're not. 
Satan's not, there's not a house divided. This is the plundering of the strong man by somebody who has bound him. So that was the application then. But there's another application for us now. And actually, I think it's very simple. The application in many ways of this story is simply do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of spiritual powers because they have been triumphed over in the cross. Don't be afraid of the strong man, Satan. I mean, it sounds scary, big strong man. But he was, on his own terms, relative to you, he's scary. But he's been bound. He's been enchained. He's been triumphed over in the cross and subjected to open shame in the cross. And while we're at it, by the way, don't be afraid either of having blasphemed against the Holy Spirit. If you worry about that because you're going, did I do this, did I do this? Don't, Don't be afraid of that either. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one, Jesus says, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. But then indeed, he may plunder his house. And that's what Jesus is doing in this place. As, we, as the word of God is preached and sung, as young people go off to New Day this week, The strong man's house is being plundered. The devil has been bound and his possessions are being taken from him by the Lord Jesus Christ who has bound him and now wants to lead those possessions, the oppressed peoples everywhere under the influence of the devil to lead them into freedom that they might be restored and find who God truly made them to be. So there is no need to be afraid of an enemy in chains, no matter how strong he seemed beforehand. And I want to finish by reading... One of the most powerful hymns on this theme I've ever written, the most powerful hymn I know on this subject, it's written by, was written by Martin Luther in 1529. So it's an old, old, 500 years old. But it's just a powerful statement of the way Christians are to think and worship in light of the power of Jesus in binding the devil. It goes like this. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great and armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts his name, from age to age the same and he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the victory of Jesus Christ over the devil and all his power. We thank you that you have bound the strong man. You have brought us into a life without fear in which we do not need to be afraid of the devil or any of his powers. And I pray that you would liberate the men and women and young people and children in this church to stand in the truth of their freedom. You would lead us out more and more into being who you've created us to be. And as we turn to pray for the young people in a moment, Lord, you would bring 
great freedom to them in the course of this next seven to ten days, Lord, that they would encounter you and they would find freedom in Jesus' name from the strong man who would seek to hold them captive but has been subdued by the mighty Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. We pray it in his name. Amen. <laughs>